0: Well thank you so much for being here. my name is Tom and I'm the, the lead pastor here at Crossroads and we are down to our last two weeks in our teaching series in the Gospel of Mark and today I'm going to draw our attention to an aspect of our lives that can um, set us on a trajectory trait for the straight for the sky it can keep us grounded and at the same time it can cut the legs out from under us it can dismantle us it can Completely change everything about who we are and what we're doing. And if you ever have ever had a strained relationship or a broken relationship or an amazing relationship or an, a, a relationship that abruptly ends, right? Or um, a relationship that you want to be there and is not, you know what I'm talking about. There is nothing else that is so formative for us as humans as relationships. Created in the image of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one of the mysteries of our faith, God has existed co-equally, co-eternally in three persons. He has existed in relationship, and we are created in that image. Our relationships form us, they inform us, they actually create our identities. Without relationships, without the relationship with God, without relationship with each other, our identities would be incomplete. (coughs) If we spent our entire existence completely isolated by ourselves, we would have no idea who we were. So as we move on, we're going to be... looking at Mark chapter 15, and what I hope you walk away from today is this, this idea that relationships form us and our decisions, for better or for worse. And the single most important relationship that should be the primary relationship in our lives is with God. And if that relationship is in order, we have the original intended foundation for what all other relationships should flow from. So before we jump into 15, the last time we were together, we talked through chapter 12. So really quick, um, some bullets on Mark chapter 13 and 14. Jesus predicts the end. He's talking to his disciples and he's telling them things are going to get bad, but I will come back. He also says that nobody nobody is going to be able to tell you a date when I'm going to come back. Okay? That's really important. The religious leaders continue to refine their plot to kill Jesus. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into chapter 15. Jesus celebrates the Last Supper with his disciples. He has that meal that we remember when we have communion here. And at that Last Supper, as they're finishing, he predicts their scattering and their betrayal. Right? The shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep are going to take off. And he, all, he looks around his table at these guys who he has this intimate relationship with. And he looks them in the eye and he says, you guys are all going to abandon me. Um, Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. He asks his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, to come with him to keep watch while he's praying. And they fall asleep. But Jesus continues about his way, even while his buddies who he asked to come and support him, fall asleep on him, he is still able to pray, Father, your will, not mine, be done. Your will, not mine, be done. Jesus is then betrayed, arrested, and abandoned. There's a a mob of the um, kind of the henchmen and a handful of the religious leaders, some of the soldiers, and they come to take Jesus captive. And then there's this They call it a trial. It's not a trial. It's a sham that's held overnight, which is illegal. And they bring in witnesses that basically lie, and they present trumped-up charges about Jesus. And that brings us right to the beginning of, of chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. This is kind of the culmination of their plan. But they could not themselves execute Jesus. Even though they found him guilty of blasphemy, which he was not, they could not execute him. And they wanted him dead and out of the picture. So they turned him over to Pilate. And we'll learn why they they did that in a second. They handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. So this you have said so is, um, scholars think this is an idiom, right? Like if Gail asked me, hey, you want to have tofu for dinner tonight? And I'm like, whatever. That means, no. yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, but not really. So in, in this case, you have said so. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And G- what Jesus is communicating to him is, yeah, I'm the king of the Jews, but not like you think. Remember, the whole back half of the Gospel of Mark has been about Jesus teaching his followers and everybody else how he is going to be the ruling, conquering king, but not with force, not with power, not with might, not politically. He's going to do it differently, and that's what he's reminding Pilate of right here. The chief priest accused him of many things, so Pilate again asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? In the Gospel of Luke, this Jesus before Pilate is captured in the, in the, other, um, the other gospels, the accounts of Jesus' active ministry. The things that they are charging him of are treason, encouraging people not to pay taxes to Caesar, and calling himself a king. There was only one king in the Roman Empire, and that, that was Caesar. So those are the charges that the religious leaders brought to Pilate because they knew Pilate could do something about those. They weren't going to do—Pilate wasn't going to do anything about— their charge of blasphemy, Pilate didn't care. But these charges, Pilate has to do something about. But Jesus, still made no, or, but Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. All right, so the title of our teaching series is Amazed. This is the last amazed statement in the gospel. Jesus amazed the crowds with his teaching, his authority, and his healing. He amazed the religious leaders, with his brilliance. He baffled them at every turn. Every time he thought, they thought that they had him, Jesus just smoothed his way right through it, and they were just left amazed. Um, he amazed, he continually amazed the disciples. They, just, they were always two steps behind Jesus. They couldn't keep up with where Jesus was going. Not yet, anyway, not yet. We'll get to that next week. Really exciting part. Um, And finally, he amazes Pilate by not, basically not making a case for himself. And what's interesting about this is in Roman law, if the defendant does not speak on their own behalf, a guilty verdict is required. I don't know if Jesus was aware of that or not. I'm pretty sure Pilate knew. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. All right, so we have to read the implication of this a little bit. Pilate, the Roman governor over the area of Judea, there was already an uprising under his watch. Not very on brand for Rome, right? Not a good look for Pilate. He was like already kind of in hot water with, with Rome. This is, is not a good situation for him. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what they usually did. So uh, people speculate on who this crowd is. And from the research that I did, what I'm most convinced of is this is basically a crowd of, it's a plant. It's a crowd of plants that the religious leaders reached out to their buddies. Again, think relationships, right? I know this person, like, they like me. They'll do what I ask them to do. I know this person wants to get in my good graces, so they'll do what I ask them. Maybe they, like, slip some money to whoever. They built this crowd. And one of the reasons why they think, a crowd wouldn't just gather, remember the very first words of this this passage? Very early in the morning. There's no reason for a crowd to be out in front of Pilate's Praetorium at six o'clock in the morning, right? So this was like hired guns. The, and <clears throat> it's so like the, the concept of relationships, the crowd now starts to, to play Pilate, right? The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Pilate's thinking, oh, phew, I, 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 don't have to, I don't have to execute Jesus. I can make the crowd happy. This whole thing goes away. Knowing it was out of self-interest, right? Pilate understood the charges were trumped up, sketchy at best, that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. They didn't come forward with points of law. They stirred up the crowd. They created a mob scene, and they got the crowd all fired up. What shall I do then with the one that you call king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. Pilate's still not convinced, right? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged, and he handed him over to be crucified. From this point, Jesus is given to the guards where he is humiliated, shamed, mocked, beaten, stripped, spat upon, tortured, and eventually crucified on a Roman cross. Some general observations about this passage, right? The first one, throughout the gospel of Mark, Jesus continually disappointed the crowds and the people because he was not bringing about a political revolution. And why is he being crucified? He's being crucified as a political revolutionary. The irony of that. The Old Testament prophecy, the, the trial, the, the week leading up to Jesus' death, the, um, the Last Supper, the components of the crucifixion, there are so many pieces that the Old Testament predicted in prophecy. But the one that I I wanted to point out just to make the point to you um, comes from Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. From the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus stood before Pilate and amazed him because Jesus would not defend himself. The Bible is one continuous story, like my friends at the Bible Project say, that points to Jesus. And the last one, everybody's guilty. Unfortunately, there are very misguided people who will use this passage to justify anti-Semitic thought, rhetoric and behavior. And nothing could be further from the truth. There's a scholar named Craig Keener, and he points out the the chain that Jesus was kind of handed through, right? In the garden, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Judas hands him over to the mob. The mob hands him over to the Sanhedrin, right? The mob was made up of Jews and Gentiles, hands him over to the Sanhedrin, Jews. The Sanhedrin hands him over to Pilate. Gentile. Pilate hands him over to Herod, which is in one of the other Gospels where we read that, Jew. Herod hands him back to Pilate, Gentile. Pilate hands him over to the Roman guards, Gentiles, who torture and crucify Jesus. Everyone then and now is guilty of the death of Jesus. There's a couple different points in Scripture book of Romans says, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Again, in Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. All of us are guilty of this. So um, I want to point out kind of what I would call three contrasts and then make a comparison. And we're going to do this. We're going to contrast and compare relationships. The first one is between the religious leaders and the crowd, right? The religious leaders and the crowd. The religious leaders used their power to manipulate others, to get what they want, and to maintain their power. The crowd, right, think of the phrase, there is strength in numbers. The crowd gave up their power to a handful of elites. Numerically, it doesn't make sense, but somehow, the religious leaders were able to stir up this crowd to get them to do what they wanted them to do. And as we we think about the idea of a crowd, um, well, let me just read you this quote first, and then we'll go. uh, Crowds possess the power to make the timid brave, the good better, or the bad devastating. When passions are shared, they swell, exciting actions to the status of legend or infamy. The power... Of assembly can build a better society or destroy it. So, this crowd got worked up into a frenzy and it ended up, they ended up crucifying an innocent man. So, as we think about this, um, there are, unfortunately, there are examples of like physical crowds in real life getting stirred up. But where we see this even more, evidently is in social media, right? And even some of those crowds that get stirred up in real life, those things got started in social media. There was a, a report that the Senate had commissioned to run after the, the 2016 election. And the report basically pointed out that there's a wing of the Russian government called the IRA. I think it's the Intelligence Research Association. and. So much of the dissension and the division and the disunity and and even some of the racial tension that we felt in our country coming out of that election they can through digital trace they can take a direct line back to russia right regardless of what your your politics are I'm talking about social media right so what is it that um that is affecting the decisions that you make, right? More simply put, to whom are you yielding your power and agency and why, right? If you spend a lot of time on social media, how is that affecting you? What conclusions is it causing you to draw? Have you put yourself in an echo chamber where we all like people to agree with us, right? We find the parts of of social media out there that just, oh, yeah, I agree. That's, that's great. And the algorithm will just feed you more and more and more of that. And so if, for, if you are on social media, I would just encourage you as best you can to diversify what you read and who you follow and to carefully examine all of that stuff. All right? Because there's one person to whom we should be submitting, right? and that's, that's Jesus. It's not a relationship with a crowd in the, in the interwebs, right? It's Jesus. Jesus and Barabbas. Super interesting. The name Barabbas translates son of the father. Jesus is the son of the father. Barabbas um, killed to accomplish his goals. He was a murderer and an insurrectionist. Accomplish his goals. Jesus allowed himself to be killed for the preservation and advancement of others. Diametrically, diametrically opposed. And not just their behaviors, what they did, but Jesus quite literally was on Barabbas' cross. Right? We talk about the story of the gospel being Jesus accepting our punishment. Literally accepted the punishment that was meant for Barabbas. Barabbas was released and went free, and Jesus was crucified in his place. And depending on which translation that you read, the people who were crucified on either side of Jesus, sometimes in the, um, and I think in the NIV it calls them rebels, right? Quite possibly members of that insurrection. Barabbas's Barabbas's buddies. So Barabbas was part of a group that committed this insurrection. And if they're, they're part, like, I don't know, as I think about trying to put myself in Barabbas' shoes, I would need some pretty loud voices in my ear to convince me that what they were doing in a, politic, a violent political attempt at an overthrow was a good thing to do. Right. So, and again, that, that echo chamber idea and the voices around him were pointing him towards violence and for advancing their goals. So the question with this contrast is, do the voices you listen to and the input you process help you lay down your life for the sake of others? The voices that Barabbas listened to led him to kill. Jesus' relationship with his father led him to say, not my will, but yours be done. And he laid down his life. Contrast number three, Jesus and Pilate. Pilate was the picture, the perceived unlimited power. And what did he do with it? In order to satisfy the crowds, he gave in to the crowds. Jesus actually had unlimited power. And what did he do with it? He laid it down for the sake of others. Jesus goes out of his way to let it be known in the Gospels that he laid down his life. Nobody took his life from him. He laid down his life. So um, I, I guess the, the just jump right to the question, what crowd are you trying to satisfy and why? Why? Who speaks most loudly into your life? Coworkers, classmates, spouse, significant other, friend. Go back to two points ago, social media. Our relationships form us like nothing else. So I want to, let's think about, right, the leaders and the elites manipulated the crowds. The crowds manipulated Pilate. It is only out of the strength that comes from a relationship with God, right? an attached relationship, meaning we look to God for everything, our identity, our sustenance, our provision, our protection, our peace. It's only then that we have the ability to make decisions when we're faced with attempted manipulation or when we're tempted to manipulate somebody else to get what we want. If we're grounded in that relationship with God, we come from a whole different place and I want to show you Jesus as, as an example of this, right? Jesus, the comparison is the perfection of Jesus in his nature. Jesus is perfectly human and he's perfectly God, Right? Perfectly human and perfectly God. As a human, Jesus is like the archetype for all humans. He is what humanity is supposed to be and do and look like. And that, his behaviors, his thoughts, everything about him flowed from his relationship with God, Father and Spirit. And what's really important about that is the nature of of God, I, in, when I introduced this, I talked about God existing in the Trinity, and it wasn't just that God exists in these three these three persons, co-eternally, co-equally, self-giving relationship. The members of the Trinity exist to bring glory to one another. It's not about what they can do for themselves; it's about what they can do for each other. Jesus, grounded in that relationship, is able to never respond in an anxious way. All of Jesus' responses, all of his actions are grounded in this relationship with God and are helpful, appropriate, and well, well-timed. Jesus never allowed himself to be negatively influenced by the Incredibly strong forces that can exist in unhealthy, sometimes the word enmeshed, relationships. He never allowed those kinds of relationships to affect him. It was a relationship with his father, right? Think of his interactions with the disciples throughout the three years that he was with them. They, were, they wanted him to put him in seats of power. It would have been really easy for Jesus to say, great, guys, I want you to be my friends. I'll give you those seats of power. Or when Peter, you know, um, tried to rebuke Jesus when Jesus, the first time Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. Jesus went, oh, thanks, Peter. That's nice. You know, I appreciate you don't, you know. He, he stopped. He corrected him. And he encouraged him, like, Peter, no, man, your mind on earthly things, human things, we need to start moving your mind to the things of God. Right, so as we have this picture of God, perfect relationship with Jesus, and our, the, the first exposure that we have from that is our, our parents. And our parents, some of them are better at that than others. But because God is who he is, regardless of the, how difficult or how wonderful our families of origin are, God can fill in those gaps. Right? He, can, he can meet us in the middle of whatever we're at, whatever struggles we have, whatever our past tries to tell us. God can step in and he can shape us into the people that he created us to be. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Everything that Jesus did, his human life without sin, the ability to, to make it through the last 48 hours and all that he experienced, the shame, the beating, the torture, the crucifixion, and still carry out the work that God had given him to do without without sin. Um, as perfectly human, it's because Jesus knew who he was and whose he was was, and he did what no one else could do. He knew who he was, Son of God. He knew whose he was, Son of God, Savior of the world, Lord of the universe. Jesus is perfectly God. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die but god demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners christ died for us jesus is perfectly god i taught a, a series a couple of years ago you can go find it on our website about the character of god um, and some of the things we talked about is that jesus god exists as perfect love he seeks always seeks to secure the good of others Especially those who we would consider enemies, Jesus exists in perfect power, and what does God do with perfect power? He lays it down for the sake of others. Jesus exists as perfectly holy, even in his life is without sin, but in this trial we see right they had to uh, falsify charges right Pilate couldn't find a reason the the, the religious leaders in the midst of that crowd couldn't point to a legal precedent. All they tried to do was whip up the emotions of, of the crowd. Jesus was perfectly holy. Jesus also exists as in perfect justice. We recognize Jesus' crucifixion as um, the moment that the... Requirements of God were fulfilled Right, the requirements that throughout human history, from Adam and Eve down to us, could not be fulfilled. But Jesus was able to fill it. Sinless life, he dies on the cross, an innocent death. Oops, sorry. As perfectly God, Jesus created us for a relationship with him and makes that ongoing relationship possible through his perfect life, his sinless death, and his triumphant resurrection, which we get to celebrate next weekend. So think about all the relationships and all the interactions between people that existed in the, the, that time frame. How Jesus' relationship with God is what shaped him, what allowed him to do, what he did, and how the relationships between the other people created in them the ability to make what, in hindsight, we look at it, and be like, how could, you, how could you do that? Terrible, terrible decisions. Our relationships form who we are and the decisions that we make for better or for worse.